Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we are watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. This week, we'll check out the new First Contact alien film, Arrival. We'll offer you some pop culture serotonin. And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. So stick around. Take Pop Culture Happy Hour and more with you on the NPR One app. NPR One finds the best from public radio and beyond. Songs we love, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One is ready to make driving, cooking, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR One in your app store now. Before we get started here in historic Well Studio 45, this week we've moved down the hall, but let's go around the table. Stephen Thompson, what do you do at NPR? I am a writer and editor with NPR Music. And Glenn Weldon, what do you do at NPR? I write about books, comics, and other stuff for the NPR website. And with us this week in our fourth chair is one of our favorite human beings as well as our favorite uh, space movie correspondent. <laughs> Chris Klemek. Chris, when you are not in the fourth chair at Pop Culture Happy Hour, what else do you do? Well, I'm an editor at Smithsonian Air and Space. I write movie reviews, sometimes other stuff for you, and sometimes I get to talk about movies on the radio now, which is a a new fun thing. I know. You can find Chris uh, giving some uh, wisdom on the air. Because of our tour and because of my vacation, for a bunch of other reasons, it's been a while since I was uh, around the table with all of you, and I'm very, very happy to be here. So nice to have you here. It's really, really nice to see all of you guys, and I'm I'm happy to be uh, bringing another show to, uh, to our wonderful listeners. So the first thing we want to talk about this week is a new film called Arrival. Now, Arrival is directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, I apologize for my probably bad French. He also did, if you saw Ensemble, which was nominated for Outstanding Foreign Film a few years ago, or Prisoners, which has Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal, or Sicario, uh, or a couple of other ones. He directed this. It is from a screenplay by Eric Heisserer from a Ted Chang short story called The Story of Your Life. Amy Adams in this film plays a linguist who teams up with Jeremy Renner, who plays a a physicist, and they go out to try to communicate with and help manage the arrival, arrival of these uh, aliens who arrive on Earth in these big ships that hover over a bunch of different cities. It's your basic first contact setup in a lot of ways. And then it kind of unspools from there. Chris, you've done a lot of uh, space movie stuff with us in the past. How did this one strike you? Uh, I'm afraid I have to tell you that I have a page full of notes here about The Arrival, starring Charlie Sheen, <laughs> uh-huh. Lindsay Krauss, and Richard Schiff. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, 1996, That's what I figured. same year as Contact, Glenn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, this is usually the time of year when I'm, I'm sitting here in this very chair or a, another chair down the hall saying that this Chris Nolan movie was better than you're saying it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, this certainly did put me in mind of Interstellar with the the sort of uh, melding of a, of a more personal, emotional, family-rooted story mm-hmm. with this cosmic kind of, you know, expansion of the, the species and mysteries of the universe being revealed. I like this movie a lot. I think it's in my, my top five of the year, certainly. I even like it a little better than the, the Ted Chang story, which I was moved to, to seek out after I, I saw the movie. There is a, a, a sort of symmetry of a form of the language that Amy Adams is studying in this film that comes to be reflected in the way the film tells the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the kind of you know thing that you you only discover when it's taken as a whole. But but the what yeah. you're what you're learning in each scene is you know like you're, you're giving this this little crumb of insight. It, it kind of is like learning a language. Whereas it proceeds along, you you understand more. And I never I never felt like I was ahead of it. Yeah. Uh, visually, I think it's terrific. I've liked all of the movies that. Uh, Denis Villeneuve has has made in English. I think this is the the fourth. 
very pleased that he's the guy who's making the Blade Runner sequel if we have to have one. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'd probably trust him to do it more than Ridley Scott at this point. So yeah. I really, really liked it. Yeah. How about you, Glenn? I liked it too. Uh, yeah, to me, it felt like Interstellar without the pomposity. Yeah. Uh, but with the same whiteboards. Lots of whiteboards <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> yeah. um, if you watched Close Encounters and got a little impatient with all the family stuff, all that Richard Dreyfus with a sunburn. I just and, don't like potatoes. And the mashed potatoes. And you were like, yes, get, move it along. And wanted to spend the entire movie with Bob Balaban and Francois Truffaut as the scientist trying mm-hmm. to figure this stuff out. Mm-hmm. This film is for you. There's a big focus on the process. There is a moment when she goes to, what, a whiteboard, and starts to write out a sentence that she's going to provide. Uh, yeah, I was going to talk about this scene too. The context for, and I got a little thrill. If you're a process nerd like me, is like, is she going to diagram this sentence? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think she's going to. She didn't diagram the sentence. Kind and of, though. In, in a way. Kind of did. Sort of, but then she kind of circles the words in it that need more context. Yeah. And I just sat there going, there's a lot more in this sentence that needs no, of more course. context. So of there's course. jumps in the process. This movie isn't about that process, though. All of a sudden, there are words which seem highly abstract, which are becoming part of the vocabulary, which seems sure. really like there's a There's some reach. cheating. There's sure. some cheating. There's some cheating, but it's not hand-waving. The biggest thing that frustrates me about science fiction is this notion that when aliens come, we need just something like that, like a little babelfish or something, just to kind of make, yeah. it, make it universal when language is going to be the biggest stumbling block to any kind of interstellar contact. And we get the process, but we also do get a human story. When we talked about gravity, for me, there was an element to that film, a piece of the main character's backstory, which felt... Hollywoodized, which yeah. felt very, we're yeah. putting this in here, it felt artificial, it felt imposed to flesh out the character. Mm-hmm. That same element is in this film, but right. it becomes, in a way, what the story's about. Yeah. It's, it much more needs to be there. Yeah. It's not just there, there so that you care about the character, which is what I didn't like about that element in Gravity. Yeah, so uh, anyway, I dug it. Yeah. I think for me, the thing that, I, that struck me about this movie is how much it is a movie about optimism. There are elements of it that are very sad, but it is an optimistic movie in the same way that many science fiction movies are, which is its fetishization of, in this case, literally of language, but always of understanding and learning. And this idea that if only we can learn how to communicate and we can learn enough and we can know enough and we can share enough information and we can put the right inputs, then we can solve things and we can figure things out. And it is a movie that believes deeply that the purpose of the purpose that we all have is to learn more and know more and understand more. And I sometimes feel like in real life, that's not always true. <laughs> in real life, it doesn't always yeah. feel like that. It's really built on the idea that we are all as humanity, and pardon me if I speak about the nature of humanity, that the nature of humanity is kind of to be well-programmed machines to make goodness and that you just need to put the right inputs in and enough of the right inputs and that if you can improve the quality of those inputs and figure out what's going on, that what you will get is a just result. And the world doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes it feels like we are more efficiently made to create suffering than inefficiently made to create beauty. But this movie believes we are inefficiently made to create beauty and the more you can learn and the more you can understand the more you can accomplish that, although I also think it understands no matter how much you know, no matter how much you understand, there are things you can change 
and there are things that you can't. Right. And I think it's honest about that, too. Yeah. What did you think, Stephen? I, I really loved it. I echo a lot of what you guys have been saying, including as Glenn brought up that scene with the whiteboard and she writes down the sentence, what is your purpose on Earth? And the the, the military guy <laughs> played by Forrest Whitaker with a very bad New England accent. Yeah, I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, um, I didn't get that accent uh, either. She's explaining to him why you can't just like devise, figure out their language enough to ask, what is your purpose on Earth? And she's, oh, this is beautiful scene where she's like circling words the difference between the you that is you and then the larger you. I, I I love that kind of stuff it felt like this movie did a lot of the deeper thinking that would be necessary to determine how you manage to communicate with beings who have none of the same communication style as you yeah the process nerd in me really really flipped out about it but then there's also this incredible emotional pull I think aided very much by what I thought was a wonderful score mm-hmm. by Johan Johansson, who I think may finally get his Oscar. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a score nerd. I particularly love Johan Johansson. He did like the theory of everything. He's done a bunch he's of... Done, he's done all of Villeneuve's movies. Yes, he did Sicario. I just found as this movie wound to a conclusion that we will not give away, I just suddenly got kind of emotionally, I, I was overcome. I found it incredibly moving and kind of coming to this these larger themes of like embracing our lives as we've lived them Yes, that I think is really powerful and important and not necessarily the message that I expected to get from a movie about communicating with aliens. Yeah, and I think if you heard me talk about this movie after I saw it in Toronto, because I saw it in Toronto uh, in early September and then I saw it again this past weekend. When I came back from Toronto, my take on it was I found the beginning kind of slow and difficult uh, and a little bit plodding. There are there's a kind of a long sequence of entering the ship the first time, which I know is meant to be Hmm. wonderment, but which I found myself kind of impatient with the first time (laughs) I saw it. But then I had been really drawn in by kind of the final act as you get the idea of what's really going on here and what all the implications are, which, as you can probably tell, we're talking around as carefully as we can. But this weekend when I saw it again, I liked it much more and I liked it with many fewer reservations and I felt like things about it really came to life for me on a second viewing that didn't on the first. And I am usually a person who is skeptical of the, if you didn't like it, you just need to see it two or three more times. (laughs) I'm I'm often very skeptical of that, but I think there is a very particular type of movie that really benefits from a second viewing, and I think this is one. So if you see it and you like it, even if you like it with reservations, I would say it is worth a second look. Yeah, this is a movie that does a really good job of expressing its ideas visually. I mean, we we have permission to talk about these things because it's two academics. Jeremy Renner's character, I guess we haven't mentioned him yet. He's a physicist that the Army brings in along with Amy Adams, the linguist. And they have to talk about the things that you're going to expect two PhDs to, to talk about. But it doesn't burden you with that. There, there's so much of it that's just visual. The first time they go up into the ship, the way that the movie expresses that the laws of physics are can be manipulated mm-hmm. here, I thought was, was really just, just enveloping and, and uh, got you on kind of a sensory level. It's yeah. not talky. Yeah, um, I've read some reviews online that are saying, who is this for? Because it's not artsy enough for the art house crowd, and it, there's not enough explosions in it for people who just want to see a big aliens thing. I, I think this kind of goes right down that middle. It is thoughtful, more thoughtful than I expected it to be, 
and it's also, as you were saying, Linda, humanist. This is yeah. this is humanist science fiction, and the the kind that says that says something in a less intentionally hokey, cheesy way than Star Trek does. But it, it it's occupying some of that same space about our potential as a species. I, I think that's something we need. Yeah, I agree, and I and I. I think you do get that idea from it that, you know, you always see these films where the heroes are scientists or journalists or Jeff te- Goldblum. teachers, yeah. <laughs> scientists, teachers, journalists. And those are often films that prioritize the idea that everything is kind of learn and teach, learn and teach, learn and teach. And then on the other side, everything is kind of listen and heed, you know, Mm -hmm. listen and heed, listen and heed. And those are very important stories, I think, because otherwise, you know, you wind up with a kind of, you can wind up with science fiction. One of the reasons why I'm sometimes not a science fiction person is that you can wind up with science fiction that feels to me kind of ambivalent about humanity and which is a feeling I understand, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of, I think, one of my struggles with Interstellar was yeah. that it felt cold to yeah. me. Yeah, and, well, we're, we're already on the way out in that movie. You know, that, that's that's a very much like how many people can we fit on the arc yeah. kind of yeah, movie. And, and this film is more, I think this film is more in a macro sense, at least, it is hopeful about the yeah. possibility of yeah. changing your fate as a species, but also about one of the things I like about it, too, is that although she is the linguist and he is the physicist, you can see the influence of the fact that she's learned a bunch of things over the course of her life that have prepared her for this moment. And, and so has he. And, you know, you find other people who are open to learning and open to helping and all of that kind of stuff. For me, I guess I just came back to it again and again and just wanted to roll around in the discussions of language and its treatment of language as like a tool, but also just like a a greater purpose. I loved this movie and, and I'm kind of in the midpoint of the experience that you had, Linda, in that I've seen it once. I saw it once over the weekend and I'm just I'm really, really eager to go back and see it again. Yeah. I, I think this movie will be a bulwark against the othering of tentacled creatures that we <laughs> see so often in the cinema. Yeah, the inter- the, it's an interesting vision of aliens. You know, I think yeah. they more than most. I think they try to say, you know, if you ever encounter an alien creature, it's not going to probably look like a little walking person, yeah. only slightly different. There's a whole thing of the way they communicate, which I couldn't spoil if I wanted to because I wouldn't know how to explain it exactly. Yeah. But their mode of communication, their mode of language is not just like and, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like like aliens often are in movies. It presents some of the actual communication difficulties that you probably would encounter which is that the entire mode of communication might be different. And mm-hmm. the entire mode of communication might be, I read uh, something online about how the vision came a, a lot of it from jellyfish. Mm-hmm. So you're not even talking about something that has a conventional mouth and, you know, it's not yeah. a mammalian kind of idea. And I liked that too. Yeah, this this is a thing that astronomers and astrobiologists talk about all the time. It's like, if we encounter alien life, will we even recognize it? Not right. not will we be able to talk to them, right. but like, will we even, you know, if it's not carbon-based, if its entire biological system is something else, will we even know that we're looking at something right. And in that alive? sense, this is probably closer, you know, a jellyfish yeah. is probably closer to us than... Right. So we're living in a great time with uh, cinematic science fiction because we're not living with the constrained budgets and technology that means we put a guy in a suit. Or we slap some silly putty on their forehead and and shove them out there and go, now be an alien. We can actually radically imagine what this would look like. 
Yeah. I think it's a very, very good movie. And I think that the what you were reading, Glenn, as pieces questioning its place are, for me, part of what makes it exciting, yeah. Yeah. right, is that it is art house science fiction in a way that has some of the kind of thrill of traditional science fiction, but also is, you know, unafraid of emotion and unafraid of people like me who get impatient with long setups, which I freely cop to the fact that that's a that's a me thing. And in the end, once I had seen it twice, I was very grateful. I wanted the little the little lift that they they ride up into the shift, one of those little like things that window washers ride and stuff. I wanted to see the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) You just wanted the entire process of it rising up. Well, this film is almost like Gone Girl in the sense that I I almost think we need a whole different conversation in which we can actually talk talk about about all the things we're not telling you. But uh, I hope that a lot of you will go out and see it and enjoy it and let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. You can tweet at us at PCHH. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about pop culture serotonin. Now, as you may know, serotonin in your brain helps you regulate mood. It helps you sleep. It helps you stay uh, happy and functioning. And we all need that from time to time. So we're going to talk a little bit when we come back about pop culture serotonin. Support for this podcast and the following message come from 20th Century Fox with Rules Don't Apply, a romantic dramedy written, directed, and produced by 15-time Academy Award nominee Warren Beatty. Starring Lily Collins, Alden Ehrenreich, Warren Beatty, Annette Bening, Matthew Broderick, and Alec Baldwin. Rules Don't Apply follows an aspiring young actress and her ambitious young driver as they struggle hopefully with the absurd eccentricities of the wildly unpredictable billionaire for whom they work. In theaters, November 23rd. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Now, as we tape this episode, it's November 14th. We've got about a month and a half of this year left to go. And a lot of you have shared with me and with us that in a whole host of ways, 2016 has been very hard on you. I can't tell you how to respond to that. I think everybody does in their own way, but it's important, I think, for everybody to have a variety of tools at their disposal. you got to have your backpack with all your stuff in it. And in that spirit, we thought this was a good time to provide you with some pop culture serotonin, as we're calling it. In other words, when you just need that visceral shot to help you feel better in those times when you decide that that's the tool that you need in that moment, we want to help you find it. So we're just going to throw some ideas out there for pop culture serotonin. Stephen Thompson, when I need serotonin, <laughs> you are one of my primo destinations. Really? So talk to me. Yes. I thought I'm uniquely ill-suited for this because as an anxious person, I tend to regulate yeah. my moods with music, looking for something that will bring me down a little bit, yeah. that will make my nerves less jangled. And so we had the discussion ahead of, ahead of this conversation, like, this isn't comfort food. Yeah. This is a jolt. Right. Yeah. This is, uh, I, I almost viewed serotonin like adrenaline. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I... I, I Obviously, we had the discussion. Stephen, don't mention Andrew WK. You always talk about Andrew WK. Consider Andrew WK a, a taken, he's a just, given. Yeah, he's just in the canon. We, we already know about this. I've talked before at some point on the show about my love of the pop song Too Little Too Late by JoJo. Yes. As a pick-me-up, Lose Yourself by Eminem uh-huh. is, a, is a great kind of just like a kind of rocky fight song kind of mm-hmm. thing. But I went with... Uh, I, I went. Uh, made a couple of music picks sure. that I have not talked about this on the show, or at least I hope I haven't. Mm-hmm. And the first one is by um, the band Public Enemy. 
and their collaboration with Anthrax. Wow. Um, oh, man. In, yes. In uh, 1991. This has um, been in my life a long time. Oh, my God. And I have this has been a go-to for me for 25, probably exactly same 25 time, years. Same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Apocalypse 91, The Empire Strikes Black. On The Empire Strikes Black, there is a version of Public Enemy's song, Bring the Noise, that Anthrax took, uh, a heavy metal band, took and, and modified. They take the first two verses by Chuck D, and then the third and fourth verse, they have a Scott Ian from anthrax rapping as best he can and uh, he's he's pretty good i mean he goes for speed chuck d goes for force but together it is just this this kind of incredibly rousing metal version of a great hip-hop song that i think serves hip-hop and heavy metal really well and it is a it is a cranked up windows down uh standby for me for low these last 25 years I wish you could all see Steven mouthing along with this entire thing. It's pretty great. I can do I can do almost this entire song from memory. The, the speedier third and fourth verses are a little trickier to wrap uh, wrap your mouth around. Good pick, but it is fun. such a great song. The original version is really great. The Anthrax version, yeah. of course, gives it that that heavy metal bed that it's laid right. on. It was actually inspired by a shout-out to Anthrax in Bring the Noise. Oh, nice. All right, Glenn Weldon, what do you have for us, buddy? Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, if you please. There is a new rock group in the house. Their name, The Pipettes. As the the teen tycoon of rock, I know I'd like to hear them, and I'm sure you would too. (laughs) The Pipettes. Does she like to hip hop? Uh, I question if she likes to hip hop. But anyway, that's of course the Pipettes, the yeah. girl group, the quote unquote manufactured girl group. Anthrax oh, provided of more the, proof of concept. <laughs> right. Pipettes. However, all music is manufactured and they're just great. And that yeah. video, uh, which I was quoting from at the beginning, is also just fantastic. And in fairness, I had not really heard this song too much until I read Phonogram, which is a uh, comic book series by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. Uh, the first volume is called Rubitania, and it's about how music is a form of magic, and that particular song has a unique kind of magic that plays out over the course of the volumes. So it's uh, great. Pull shapes by the pipettes. Let the record show that the person mouthing every word to that song was Linda Holmes. That's right. All right. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Chris Klimek, bring it, buddy. Well, I'm afraid I have to tell you that my legal team has informed me that my performance contract has not been honored (laughs) with regard to language. I was to be introduced in a certain way. Uh So if we could remedy that now, please, Jess. This man will make your liver quiver. This man will make your bladder splatter. This man will freeze your knees, if you will. Let's all welcome the world's godfather of soul, soul brother number one, 
Me. Okay. Sure. No. I'll concede if I mean I'm like soul brother number seven. Right. right? Sure. Not, maybe not one. Probably not two. So this this introduction of James Brown's uh, set in. Uh, Kinshasa Zaire in 1974 is featured in the documentary Soul Power. Now, this is from the same trove of footage that produced the great documentary, the Oscar-winning documentary, When We Were Kings, yeah. from 1996. Part of the the whole, uh, you know, Don King's uh, organizing of, of this fight between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali in the jungle was, was that there was to be a music festival to accompany this fight. So he started moving all of his musicians over there to, to Zaire, and um, the foreman injured himself sparring. So the fight was delayed by six weeks, but it was too late to, to stop plans for the concert. So over the course of three days in September of 1974, um, this musical festival went forth with uh, James Brown, B.B. King, The Spinners, Bill Withers, basically all of the major figures in, in black music in the you know, early, mid-70s. This is a, a was a country basically under dictatorial rule under under President Mobutu. He allowed this this fight and this music festival to go forth to try to burnish the image of his country. The documentary that, that captures all this uh, soul power came out in 2008. It's kind of like half and half concert film and half and half show making documentary, mm -hmm. and it's a really great backstage drama just about the chaos of showmaking, you know, when James Brown and his entourage shows up with 40,000 pounds of equipment that they don't know how they're going <laughs> to fly nice. on this plane that isn't, uh, just, just dealing with that stuff is, is really fun. Um, so this music is, is what I've turned to increasingly in adulthood to, to help me, you know, get me through workouts and get me mm -hmm. through really, really hard days. And, yeah. uh, this documentary has all of that, you know, it features all of, all of these, these people coming from an incredibly tumultuous time in American life. This, this concert was about six weeks after President Nixon resigned. You know, it's taking place in a stadium that has a painting of Mobutu affixed to the side of it mm -hmm. that we see again and again. So the, the political context really can't be divorced from, sure. from the art here. That's my pick. It's a documentary, Soul Power, from 2008, documenting this this concert from 1974. Thank you very nice. much, Chris Klimek. So first of all, I'll just say, if you want music picks from me, you should start first with the two Spotify playlists that I crowdsourced years ago now that I still listen to relatively regularly, one of which is called Begging the Public for Joy, the other one of which is called Begging the Public for Joy 2, <laughs> uh, Joymaker's Revenge, I believe. And I will link to both of those. I know not everybody has Spotify, but they are wonderful, and everybody really came through for me. There's all kinds of good stuff on there. So I'm in a different direction. I believe in the power of going to a theater and seeing a comedy with other people. Mm. Um, not just see a comedy, see a comedy in the theater. And I did it this weekend. After I saw Arrival, I stayed at the theater and I saw Almost Christmas, which is this new uh, family comedy. It's kind of your basic big ensemble cast. Danny Glover plays the patriarch of this family. It's been advertised heavily during Lethal Weapon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> TV Lethal Weapon. Yeah. So Danny Glover plays the patriarch. The matriarch has died in the past year. And now the kids are all kind of coming together. Monique plays the, the auntie. And... It is a fun movie. Gabrielle Union and Omar Epps have this kind of like little side rom-com plot. J.B. Smoove is in it. Romney Malco is in it. 
it is a good cast. If you like Monique at all, this is just Monique in her, to me, most happy-making form. She's wonderful in this movie. It really made me laugh. I saw it in this pretty full theater, and everybody really loved it and responded to it. The power, to me, of seeing a comedy with other human beings and hearing them laugh is really, really good for me. It really gave me a jolt, and I liked it. So that's the first thing I'm going to mention is uh, see a comedy in a theater. And if you want one right now, Almost Christmas. It is is formulaic, but it is also really satisfying, and I very much enjoyed it. I may take you up on that. That's a good uh, good, I very much enjoyed it. What else do you have, Stephen? Well, I stuck with music, uh, as is my my want. Uh, I went with a a band called Japandroids, one of my favorite bands. Favorite album of 2012 is called, and it is the most perfectly titled album maybe ever, it is called Celebration Rock. When it came out, I I used to just absolutely blast it in my minivan as I drove to work. And one day I get into the office and I run into my colleague, Jacob Gans. And uh, I'm like, hey, how's it going, Jacob? He's like, God, I just had the best experience this morning. He said, I was walking to work and I saw this minivan drive by blaring Japandroids. And I was like, yeah. That was me, (laughs) aging minivan dad rocking Japandroids, clinging to the tiny scraps of his youth that remain. If you are somebody who is looking to cling to the tiny scraps of youth that remain, the music of Japandroids is exactly for you. Celebration Rock, I think, is just perfect. It starts and finishes with the sound of fireworks. That is a perfect metaphor for what is going on on those, like, eight perfect songs. The band has a new album coming out on January 27th, and there is a single out from it, both album and song are called Near to the Wild Heart of Life. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Okay, Glenn, what have you got? Jessica Reedy, Azúcar. Mi voz puede volar, puede atravesar cualquier herida, cualquier tiempo, cualquier soledad. Sin que la pueda controlar, toma forma de canción. Así es mi voz, que sale de mi corazón y volará sin yo querer. Por los caminos más lejanos, por los sueños que soñé, será reflejo del amor de lo que me tocó vivir. Será la música de fondo de lo mucho que sentí. Oye, mi son. There we go. That is, of course, the great, the wonderful, the uh, incomparable Celia Cruz singing. Yo viviré, I will survive, uh-huh. uh, really adapting the lyrics in yeah. a big old way, uh-huh. really, uh-huh. really changing them, but it is a, A, it's a very important sentiment, I will survive, and B, it's just great. That's from her uh, 2000 album, but the album that I always talk about when I talk about lifting spirits is Celia Cruz and Friends, which she does with Tito Puente. I've talked about Bebo Colora, I've talked about Guantanamera, I've talked about Life is a Carnival. I just want to tick off a few other things real quick. Anti-Mame. Uh, it's a film. This 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 list, by the way, if that first thing didn't uh, tip you off, uh, it leans heavily into the gay. Uh, the way she says, my darling Patrick, 
the end K in that name should be what's called in, in linguistics a voiceless velar stop. And it's not voiceless, and she doesn't stop. Uh-huh. It just keeps going on. In Monty Python's Life of Brian, there is a scene where we go down three different prophets. One, The first guy is shouting about the horror of Babylon and blood and fire. The second guy has said, and the sword will attack you and you. Nine-bladed, not two. And then uh, we get to Michael Palin, who is there saying, and uh, no one will know what happened to everything and no one will really know where lieth the things possessed by their fathers that That the fathers put there only (laughs) and no one will really know where lieth the little things with a sort of rapier work base that has an attachment the new pornographer's album electric version has a song called uh, the laws have changed Uh Uh, great video great song The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, a comic by Ryan North and Erica Henderson, uh, in the moment in The Fellowship of the Ring, where the Fellowship enters Lothlorien Forest, and an elf comes out and says, That dwarf breathes so loud, we could have shot him in the dark. Like that? That's a great little moment. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Choctaw Factory, the scene of pure imagination, where Gene Wilder steps in, starts singing that song. The door opens, we see a wonderland of color and candy. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of your imagination and it seems like it's really sentimental but the important thing about it the thing that makes me so happy about it is that it's not a it's in a factory you never lose sight of the fact in that whole movie that you're in this dark gloomy factory and that that this uh, color is sort of manufactured and gene wilder's performance there is so cool and detached and not sinister but there's something going on there that takes all the sentimentality of it and just brings in this amazing joy If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do it, want to change the world, there's nothing to it. All right. Thank you very much, Glenn. I'm happy to know that you have plenty. Chris Klimek, what else do you have? Well, I don't only listen to music from the 1970s. I also listen to more recent covers of music from the 1970s. Uh, In 2010, John Legend and the Roots released an album called Wake Up that was inspired by Mr. Legend's campaigning for, for Barack Obama in 2008, where they compiled a bunch of the... Some of the, the great soul anthems of that, that same era that I was talking about featured in, in uh, Soul Power, along with, with one new song called Shine that John Legend had written to, to cap off that album. Um, Jess, can we hear a little bit of clip two, please? As long as there's a you, there's a better me Is why we're together and stronger than they ever thought it could be A world motherless can help care cover this A love for all people no matter what the culture is Our generation is making huge strides A self-empowering movement that's on the rise The more the doors open, the more the youth can see A fair chance means a greater opportunity To have a brighter future, deeper insight Work hard to be anything you want in life It's what it's all about, the longevity Educated enough to know what's ahead so this is the CL Smooth verse in uh, their cover of Our Generation, The Hope of the World, uh, originally by Ernie Hines uh, in 2010 by, by John Legend and The Roots. Thank you very much, Chris Klimek. I'm going to just take a very easy one here and say never forget comedy albums. Sure. Just straight up comedy albums. I'm going to recommend two, both from dear friends of the show. One is Josh Gondelman's Physical Whisper, mm-hmm. which is very, very funny. And the other is uh, our dear friend Kamal Nanjiani's oh, Beta Male. 
those are just both two of my favorite guys. They yeah. both do wonderful comedy. They both really make me laugh, and they both are hilarious without meanness, which I, I mm-hmm. admire so much about both of them. And one more I want to add also, uh, Aparna Nancharla's uh, got a record that oh, was yeah. out this yeah. summer as well. She's very, very funny. Her record is called Just Putting It Out There. She also recently talked to Audie Cornish, mm-hmm. uh, our our wonderful friend Audie Cornish, on All Things Considered. You can look that up. There's a lot. Uh, oh, yeah. We've got a lot of this stuff. Maybe we'll throw you some more links in the blog post uh, for the show. And, and we'll crowdsource like crazy. Like, go to our Facebook page and talk about what you are going to for your serotonin yep, uplift. Because I, I could always use some more suggestions. Again, facebook.com slash PCHH. Come and find us and tell us all about your pop culture serotonin. When we come back, oh, we are keeping rolling with this theme. Because when we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? So come right back. Guy Raz hosts the newest NPR podcast, How I Built This. It's about innovators and entrepreneurs and the stories behind the movements, companies, and products they created. Each episode captures triumphs, failures, serendipity, and insight told by the founders of some of the world's best-known companies like Epic Records founder L.A. Reid and global restaurateur Jose Andreas. Find How I Built This now on the NPR One app and at npr.org podcasts. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment. What is making us happy this week? Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, buddy? Well, in this year of musician deaths, I wanted to pay quick tribute to Leonard Cohen, mm-hmm. who, who who died last week. Unfortunately, saying I choose uh, for what's making me happy the most bleak <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and sort of sunken music uh, imaginable, I didn't want to go by without noting his, his passing and his, his wonderful music. Uh, what's making me happy, though, is uh, I finally started watching the TV show Speechless. Inspired by our trip to the Now Hear This podcast festival, we saw a wonderful taping of the Jimmy Pardo podcast. Never Not Funny. Never, Never not, not Funny. funny. And uh, his guest was John Ross Bowie, who plays the sort of dopey dad on Speechless. And it's really, really fun. I've, I've only gotten through the, the first couple episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, what's striking, first of all, it's a, it's a terrific show. They're, they're clearly building a wonderful little supporting cast. Minnie Driver's very funny in it. But John Ross Bowie, every time, it does hit a little bit of comedic overdrive. You like a good sitcom dad. I like a good sitcom dad. And he is really, really funny. Yes. And he's funny on that show that that we watched like every time he would say something it was hilarious. Yep. Yeah. So I'm a hugely in the tank for John Ross Bowie mm-hmm. on the basis of what I saw in in Anaheim and then seeing him on this show was just delightful. I'm sticking with it. I really like this show Speechless on ABC. Thank you very much, Stephen and I would point out that that never not funny episode is in their podcast feed. Yes, oh, great. Absolutely. Thank you very much, buddy. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? The week of Thanksgiving, uh, a show called Search Party will premiere on TBS. So I discovered it because uh, the pilot is already on demand, and I just clicked with the sensibility of this show immediately. I haven't seen any, any other episodes yet, but it's a half-hour comedy about a young woman played by Alia Shawkat who it learns that a distant, distant acquaintance from college has gone missing. She becomes obsessed with that fact and that woman and draws her friends into a uh, an effort to find her. Her friends include John Early, the comedian John Early, who I've talked about a lot, her terrible, terrible boyfriend, played by John Reynolds. This show is really good at conveying exactly 
exactly how awful these people are. Even before he busts out the ukulele, you know that this guy's a loser. And uh, Meredith Hanger playing a very actressy actress. If you have known any actors in your life, you will get brown acid flashbacks of that sort of intense neediness. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very, 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 very funny. And I think it's going someplace. Uh, so that search party on TBS. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Chris Klimek. Well, unlike uh, the primary members of the Pop Culture Happy Hour family, I am not an easy crier. So here's what I got. Last night I saw Carousel at Arena Stage, not being so well-versed in Rodgers and Hammerstein. I didn't Hammerstein. know they had a Carousel. I, I, they do. You should go. Uh, and, I mean, the only song that was, was known to me going in was the one that I had heard sung by, uh, of all people, Elvis Costello and, separately, Bono. Seeing that show sent me back when I got home to uh, this version. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart And you'll never walk alone You'll never walk alone uh, To me, as with Leonard Cohen, the, the frailty in Johnny Cash's voice in his later years, and this was one of his, his final recordings from the, the box set Unearthed that was released shortly after his death in 2003, has only contributed to the expressiveness of, of the songs for me. And uh, hearing this, it did what I needed it to do, and I shall be happy again. Absolutely. <laughs> but that's it. Absolutely. You'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. Thank you very much, Chris Glimmick. I had the opportunity this weekend to get together with a panel to talk about the Amazon series Good Girls Revolt, which we've talked about. I think I've mentioned a little bit, maybe after Press Tour mentioned. I am about halfway through it myself. It tells the story of the women who worked as researchers at Newsweek who banded together and filed a complaint with the EEOC over the fact that men were reporters and women were essentially researchers who worked as their right hand. And... I got together with Lynn Povich, who was one of the reporters and wrote the book, and Eleanor Holmes Norton, who is uh, D.C.'s non-voting representative in Congress, and who was the attorney who helped them file their complaint, which was ultimately successful. And then with four of the actresses, Aaron Dark and Joy Bryant, who you might know from Parenthood and other things, and Genevieve Angelson, and then also Anna Camp. It's not a panel that we're releasing, but I did want to talk about it just because this combination of women was really wonderful for me to get together with. At that time, we talked about the original case. I was able to talk to this journalist and this this attorney and congresswoman, and I was able to talk to these actresses who were very, very open about talking about their own experiences with discrimination and things like that. And although I can't share the panel with you, I will tell you that my image of that show is really boosted by the fact that I had such a good experience with them. And I do have to say, those women were just wonderful to talk to. So thanks to everybody who came out for it. If you're interested, Good Girls Revolt tells the story about a pretty uh, historic moment in journalism. And so thanks to everybody who came out for that. And thanks to everybody who has kind of chatted with me on Twitter about the series. That is absolutely what made me happy this week. Uh, and that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPRMonkeyC. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Glenn at G.H. Weldon. You can follow Chris at C.T. Klimek. That's K-L-I-M-E-K. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy. And our producer, Emeritus and music director, 
Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music, which we hope that you are tapping your foot to right now. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you do need serotonin, I hope you find it. If 2016 is tough on you, I hope it gets easier. And we will see you right back here next week.